There was once a contest in professional wrestling called the King of the Mountain Match. In it, multiple fighters would enter the ring and only could advance by scoring a submission on an opponent. Once they had subdued an adversary, a fighter could attempt to retrieve a championship belt and hang it on the hook suspended above the ring with the aid of ladders stationed outside the ring. Sounds like a rip-roaring good time, if you ask me. Now, Esau was a fighter. His grappling days began uh, in the womb, really, when his twin brother tried to get the drop on him. But growing up, he, he still was a fighter. He became a skilled hunter. Later, we found he had built himself a militia, hundreds strong. In our text tonight, we see him become a powerful ruler whose people go out conquering mountains and men. Edom subdues those who stand in his way. And as a result, he climbs the social ladder, climbs the economic ladder. He sits at the top of the hill as a champion. But overviewing the Bible, as the story of Edom ends, the pages read of defeat and ruin and doom and all bad things. Esau would not submit himself to the Lord God of his fathers. He set aside the grace of God, choosing earthly greatness instead of godliness. And so ultimately, the champion of Seir would be brought down from his high mountain, demolished and cursed forever, the Bible says. So let's consider the rise and fall of this great people, starting in verse 1. These are the family records of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanite women, Ada, daughter of Elon, the Hethite, Aholabama, daughter of Ana, and granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basimath, daughter of Ishmael, and sister of Nebaioth. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, Basimath bore Reuel, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were Esau's sons who were born to him in the land of Canaan. As we've seen, Genesis speaks to us not only about the importance and significance of marriage, but also the importance of who you marry. Uh, you may recall, if you've been here for a while, that Esau's first wives caused real problems uh, between him and his parents. Marrying a couple of Canaanite ladies was way outside the boundaries of his family culture. Abraham had made it very clear that this family was not to marry among the people of the land, but frankly, Esau never cared much for his family culture. In disdaining his birthright and marrying these Canaanites, Bible commentator R. Kent Hughes writes, he formally trashed his heritage. But his wives really bothered his parents, and it seems that Esau was a little slow on the uptake. And then he finally realizes that, uh, oh, my wives bother my parents, and that's a problem. And he saw that Isaac, his dad, signed off on Jacob marrying someone from Rebekah's family. And so uh, earlier in Genesis, we're told that when he saw that, Esau got a bright idea himself. Okay, they don't like my wives, these Canaanite wives, so here's what I'll do. I'll go and marry someone from within the greater family. I'll marry someone from Ishmael's family. You see, Esau was still trying to get a special blessing from his dad. And so what he did was try to mimic what Jacob was doing. Well, Jacob's going to my mom's family to find a wife. Well, I'll go to my dad's family to try to find a wife. After all, I'm dad's favorite. Of course, Ishmael was not exactly a beloved figure to Isaac, 
Uh, He had been Isaac's oppressive rival, and so not a great plan. And so he's got a couple of Canaanite wives. He's got a token wife here too. But when his son starts arriving, look at what Esau names them. Reuel, that means God is my friend. Eliphaz means God, my God is pure gold. And so the question is, is Esau trying to build a spiritual family for real? Or is this more tokenism? The book of Hebrews calls Esau an unholy, profane, unrepentant man. His decisions are motivated not by a desire for God, but by a desire to get things for himself. We saw back when the the birthright was taken and the blessing was taken, and Hebrews comments on this as well, that Esau was just weeping and crying, hoping to get a blessing. Isn't there another blessing for me? And his next move in life reveals really what his heart is after. Verse 6, Esau took his wives, sons, daughters, and all the people of his household, as well as his herds, all his livestock, and all the property he had acquired in Canaan. He went to a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too many for them to live together. And because of their herds, the land where they stayed could not support them. So Esau, that is Edom, lived in the mountains of Seir. So Esau moves his family to the south and east. And as we've seen multiple times before in Genesis, movements to the east always coincide with a move away from God, away from God's presence, away from his will, away from his blessing, away from his guardianship, and out into sort of just the human realm of we're going to make it on our own. Uh, There's a lot of good examples uh, of that. You can see that in Cain, in the builders at Babel, of Lot, in Esau. uh, And even when Adam and Eve are sent out of Eden because of their sin, they're sent to the east. And so this is sort of a sub-theme that we see coming up again and again. And so it's significant that Esau is moving this way. Esau's choice does remind us uh, of the same one that Lot made many years earlier when this situation was similar They both, Lot and Esau, wanted more stuff. They wanted more herds, more space, better trappings. And rather than stay in the presence of God with fewer possessions, they walked away from the Lord in pursuit of greater wealth, greater prominence, greater position. It's hard for us to fathom Lot or Esau saying, you know what, I'll give up some of my belongings so that I can stay here with you, Abraham, or so that I can stay with you, Jacob, because after all, you've been chosen by God. You are the friend of God, and I want to be in proximity to the God of heaven and earth, and so I'm going to stay here with you. That seems crazy because that's not what happened, but things like that did happen in the Bible. We have some examples like that. Ruth is a great example. In fact, Ruth was actually a descendant of Lot, But when the time came for her to choose between being with the Lord and being with her own people, she clung to her Hebrew mother-in-law, forsaking any claim she had to her homeland and to her previous life and her old culture. And she said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And on the one hand, we can say, well, yeah, her husband had died. And so that's not a big give up, but it was a big give up. She was going as a Moabitess into the land of Israel. Moabitesses were hated uh, by the Israelites. They were enemies of the Israelites. And not only was she going there, she wasn't going to be freeloading. She was willing to go and live effectively as a beggar servant. 
I'll go and work in the fields as a woman from sunup till sundown to scratch out a living so that we can survive. I will do that for you. I will serve. I will put my life on the line. I just want to be where you are and where your God is. Let's go together so that we could be in the Lord's will. Ruth was content to live that way if it meant she could be in the presence of God and his people. Mephibosheth was a son of David's friend, Jonathan. He's another example. There came a point where he had a chance to retain a bunch of land and property that was his by right. Uh, as a noble family, the grandson of a king, you know, they had a lot of property and, and a bunch of things happened. And there comes this moment where where David is returned after being in exile, and he says, okay, we have to deal with this issue with Mephibosheth and all of his land and all of his property. And as David is trying to solve this, Mephibosheth just breaks in and he says, give all that I have to this other guy over here. This other guy was conning David, stealing the stuff from Mephibosheth. Everybody knew it. And he said, I don't even care about any of that stuff. I don't want any of that land. I don't want any of those possessions. Give it all to this cheat over here. I just want to be with you, King David. I just want to be in your presence. And he lived as one of the king's sons at the king's table. And as a result of that, the king ended up saving his life in a moment where it was about to be taken from him. And so it's a beautiful picture of of a person, a crippled spiritual individual coming to the Lord and saying, I'm going to forsake whatever I need to forsake so that I can be in your presence, so that I can be with you. And when Esau is faced with this same choice, he picks possessions instead of promises. He picks goods instead of God. And this would put his life and his lineage on a course that led farther and farther away from the Lord. And of course, that's a course that leads deeper and deeper into ruin, deeper and deeper into sin, deeper and deeper into hard-heartedness. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Esau's family, the Edomites. Esau set up camp in the mountains of Seir. The territory of Judah was west of these dramatic cliffs that rose into the sky. Later, the prophets Jeremiah and Obadiah would both describe the Edomites as living like eagles in their nests high up in these mountains. This spot was not only fortified, it was also strategically placed along trade routes leading from Arabia and the Red Sea. And so a man like Esau could do very well here, and he did do very well there, economically speaking. Now, at this point, the Lord God was still showing grace to Esau. We're told in Joshua 24 that the Lord gave this land to him as a possession. God loved Esau. He was not driven out from the family of faith as Ishmael had been. He still had access to Isaac. He had reconciled with Jacob. But as Bruce Waltke points out, Esau was living by sight and not by faith. And so he's making the same mistake that Lot did. He's choosing the temporal instead of the heavenly. He's picking goods over God, possessions over promises, and it's a significant choice that he's making. Verse 9, these are the family records of Esau, father of the Edomites in the mountains of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, son of Esau's wife, Ada, and Reuel, son of Esau's wife, Basimath. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah, a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz, bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Ada. These are Reuel's sons, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. 
These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basimath. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Aholabama, daughter of Anah and granddaughter of Zibion. She bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah to Edom. So this weird list of names does contain some interesting tidbits. Uh, Derek Kidner, he's a great Bible commentator. He draws our attention to verse 11 and, and writes this. The conjunction of the names Eliphaz and Teman in verse 11 points to Edom as the probable setting of the book of Job, where Eliphaz the Temanite is prominent. Pretty interesting. We don't think about uh, you know solid people living in this area, but uh, the Lord has his remnant all over the earth. The name Amalek may have jumped out to you as well. He is the father of the Amalekites, who became vicious enemies of God's people. Uh, they were the first to attack the Jews after the exodus from Egypt. Deuteronomy 25 records how the Amalekites waylaid the Israelites. They assaulted the Israelites from behind, specifically targeting the weak and the worn out who were straggling behind, so uh, not, not real friendly people. Uh, beyond that, the Amalekites would also produce one of the Jews' arch-villains in the Old Testament, Haman, who nearly succeeded in his genocide of the Jewish people, but for God's astounding providence working through Queen Esther. So Haman was an Agagite, Agag was an Amalekite. So the question, though, is why are they known as Amalekites? Why aren't they just known as Edomites? What's going on here? Being the son of a concubine may have disqualified him from inheritance and may have sort of alienated him from the rest of the Edomites. And we'll see there may have been some other political issues at play. Verse 15, these are the chiefs among Esau's sons, the sons of Eliphaz, Esau's firstborn, chief Teman, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Kenaz, chief Korah, chief Gatam, and the chief Amalek. These are the chiefs descended from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, chief Nahath, chief Zerah, chief Shammah, chief Mizah. These are the chiefs descended from Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basimath. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Aholabama, chief Jeush, chief Jalam, chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Aholabama, daughter of Ana. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Anybody have the King James Version tonight? No? They're dukes, the dukes. I couldn't figure out a dukes of hazard title, so maybe retroactively we can do that. But what we're seeing here is that like Israel, Esau's line produced not just families but tribes of people. And there's sort of a, a very subtle reminder that um, there is always a sort of mimicry and counterfeit work that the, the enemy is happy to work through in the world that is sort of trying to mimic what the Lord wants to do, but is not quite the same thing. And so he's producing tribes. By human reckoning, Esau has it all. He's got title, respect, a bunch of money, a lovely house in the hills. He's even got some trophy wives. Sure, he had to make some compromises to get there, and yes, he had to cut a few throats on his way to the top, but now they were the Rockefellers of the Seir Mountains. Uh, in a short amount of time, he had spread in numbers and power and strength. And while Jacob was still just a little family, right, Esau has, has effectively become an empire with all these chiefs ruling in their little regions high up in the mountains. Verse 20, these are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishon, Ezer, Dishan. 
These are the chiefs among the Horites, the son of Seir, in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and He-Man. He-Man, I mean, that's solid. <laughs> Timnah was Lotan's sister. These are Shobal's sons, Alvin. I mean, like, there's a lot of good cartoon names, apparently, among the, the, the Horites here. Uh, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are Zibian's sons, Aiah and Ana. And this was the Ana who found the hot springs in the wilderness while he was pasturing the donkeys of his father Zibian. Great. These are the children of Anan, Dishon, and Aholabama, daughter of Ana. These are Dishon's sons, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, Chiran. These are Ezer's sons, Bilhan, Zavan, Achan. These are Dishon's sons, Uz and Aran. These are the chiefs among the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibian, Chief Ana, Chief Dishon, Chief Ezer, Chief Dishan. These are the chiefs among the Horites, clan by clan in the land of Seir. Now, these verses are not talking about, at first, descendants of Esau. This gives us a record of the people who were already living in the land of Seir when Esau and his clan arrived. When the family of Edom got there, they started by mingling and intermarrying with these native folks from Seir. Esau married into a leading family when he made Aholabama his wife. And Esau's son brought one of these chief sisters into the family. She was the concubine that bore Amalek to him. But after a time of mingling and assimilating, came a time of massacring and attacking. In Deuteronomy 2, we read this, the Horites had previously lived in Seir, but the descendants of Esau drove them out, destroying them completely and settling in their place. So maybe Amalek didn't appreciate what the Edomites did to his mother's people and then separated himself in order to build up a separate clan according to his own name. That's a, a, a potential. The chapter in Deuteronomy goes on to tell us that there were Rephim in this land, giants. They've cropped up before. And that, in fact, the Lord helped Esau's descendants drive them out. And so we see that the Lord has not written off the Edomites completely at this point. He was still interested in this family, even though they had no interest in him. In fact, we learn in Second Chronicles 25 that they had become polytheists after they moved to Seir. They had assimilated together, assimilated with the people, assimilated with their religions, and so they have absolutely no interest in the Lord or the things of the Lord, even though clearly the Lord still had interest in them. Verse 31 these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The name of his city was Dinhabah. When Bela died, Jobab, son of Zerah, from Basra, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Husham, from the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. When Husham died, Hadad, son of Bedad, reigned in his place. He defeated Midian in the field of Moab. The name of his city was Avith. When Hadad died, Samla from Masrica reigned in his place. When Samla died, Shaul from Rehoboth on the Euphrates River reigned in his place. And when Shaul died, Baal-Hanan, son of Akbor, reigned in his place. When Baal-Hanan, son of Akbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place. His city was Peo, and his wife's name was Mehedabal, daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. So verse 31 highlights an important fact. And that's that the Edomites established kings long before Israel. Of course, in the Old Testament, 
the, the idea of men putting kings over themselves is always presented as a, as a bad thing, as an unspiritual thing to do. When the Israelites come to Samuel and they say, we want a king, put a king over us, man, it breaks Samuel's heart. He says, do not do this thing. This is a huge mistake. They demand it. The Lord in his grace says, you want a king? You can have a king. Here's what the king is going to do to you. But in the Old Testament, the, the establishing of kings is not a good thing. It's not a spiritual thing. It is an unspiritual thing. It's another attempt by man to throw off the Lord's authority over our lives and over our communities and over our culture, saying, no, we are going to run things ourselves. This man is our champion. This man is our leader. This man is going to command us and tell us what to do. We don't care about the Lord. We don't care about his word. We don't care about his revelation. We don't care about his directives. We care about what this guy says, and we're going to uh, bow our knees to him. We notice here that these kings of Edom were not dynasties. It wasn't passed from father to son. It seems they may have even been elected, some Bible commentators think. And so it's interesting because on the one hand, as Americans, we're not into kings, right? That's great. Uh, we're really into democracy. Even some from time to time, we try to spread democracy around the world. But the truth is, when it comes to humanity, democracy has certain better things, but we're all still fallen humans, right? When a democracy is stalked and directed by unspiritual people, then unspiritual results will follow, right? What good is a democracy if the people leading that democracy are not submitted to the Lord? are not moral people, aren't people who care about the Word of God and the plan of God and the commands of God. Great, then you just have multiple kings who are doing what God doesn't want them to do instead of one. And so I'm glad we live in a democracy, but democracy is not a, a biblical thing, right? Where it's not that God said, well, I want to give everyone a democracy and everyone votes and that will solve the problem of sin in the world. What solves the problem of sin in the world is when I solve the problem of sin in my heart. And I solve the problem of sin in my heart by turning in repentance to the Lord and allowing Him to be in charge of my life. Whether I find myself in a democracy or I find myself under an authoritarian dictator. And again, don't get me wrong. I would much rather live in a democracy than not in a democracy. But it's interesting here. Yeah, let's elect a king. But none of these guys follow the Lord. None of these guys love the Lord. None of these guys brought their people closer to the Lord. In fact, much the opposite. These sons of Esau have officially become like all the other unbelieving pagans in the area, like the violent masses in Noah's day who were so wicked, the Lord said, I, I have to pour out judgment on them. The Edomites have become just like the self-sufficient planners at the Tower of Babel. They've become like the immoral city dwellers in the plains of Sodom. The Edomites who come from Abraham and Isaac have taken their place in history as another God-rejecting group of people who refuse to acknowledge that He is the Creator, that He is the Master, that He is the Lord, and they refuse to acknowledge God and receive His grace and His love and His truth. And for a while, it seemed like they had it made. They had quite a heritage full of powerful and influential, important people. They had great settlements, many possessions. But the move away from God would have profound implications. We can kind of see the, the, 
the decay of this people, the hardening of their collective heart. A few verses ago in Genesis, Esau was rushing to his brother and embracing him and hoping they would live together as one big happily family. Then we watch as Esau chooses flocks over family and says, well, I can't spend time with you anymore. I'm going to go up here so that I can have more stuff. And then we see him devouring the inhabitants of Seir who are already living there. And then once we get to the, the time of the Exodus, we see that the Edomites were unwilling to allow their cousins to even travel through their land. Moses came to the king of Edom and he said, we are trying to get from point A to point B. It's going to save us a lot of time if we can travel through your land. May we please travel through. We will stay on the highway. We will not leave the main road. We will not damage any of your vineyards. We will pay for any water that we drink. And in response, Edom marched out with a heavily armed force, refusing to let him pass and said, if you think you're going to take our road, we're going to kill all of you. Fast forward to the time of the minor prophets. The book of Obadiah is specifically written to the Edomites. To, to bring charges against them for what they have done and how far they have fallen, condemning them for the violence that they did against Israel, how they mocked and gloated when Israel was destroyed by her enemies, and how they stood at the crossroads to capture Jewish fugitives and return them to their killers. In the book of Amos, we're told that the Edomites pursued their brothers with the sword, stifled their compassion, incessantly harbored rage. Fast forward again to the last Edomites of note in the Bible, the Herods. All those dudes were from, at that point we call them Idumean because the Greeks had come in and changed the words and things like that. But they're Edomites. What did the Herods do? They slaughtered the babies of Bethlehem. They beheaded John the Baptist and the Apostle James. They abused Jesus with mockery and contempt. Meanwhile, the Lord's heart was full of love for these people. Listen to what God commanded in Deuteronomy 23. Do not despise an Edomite because he is your brother. The children born to them in the third generation may enter the Lord's assembly. And so as always, God is a God of love and grace towards these individuals. As always, God made a way so that even these hard-hearted people could have been brought into his family. So meanwhile, while Esau is abandoning his family, moving away, saying, I'm, no, I'm not a Hebrew. I'm not part of this whole Abraham-Isaac thing. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. And that morphs into later on saying, and I'm going to kill my cousins if they try to use my robe. Oh, and they're being attacked by other people. I'm going to set up shop at the crossroads, and I'm going to capture my own kinsmen, my own cousins, and make sure they cannot escape and get them back to their captors, back to their killers. And meanwhile, the Lord is saying, I'd like you to be a part of my family still. And I want to make a way for you to become part of my family. And I'm going to tell my people, the Jews, that you are not allowed to despise an Edomite. And, and, and if they had been willing, the Lord is like, I want you to be part of my family because that's always God's heart towards individuals. Now, at this point, someone might say, wait just a minute. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Oh, you know. <laughs> you find that phrase in Malachi chapter 1 and repeated in Romans chapter 9. Those texts deal with God's plans for the nations of Israel and Edom. They speak of the consequences of rejecting God. 
One source writes this, in the context, love refers to choice rather than affection, and hated refers to rejection rather than animosity, which was explicitly prohibited against Esau's descendants. Another source says this, the Hebrew words for loved and hated refer not to God's emotions, but to his choice of one over the other for a covenant relationship. Nor do these words by themselves indicate the eternal destinations of Jacob and Esau. The verbs refer to God's acts in history toward both of the two nations which descended from the two brothers." God destroyed the Edomite nation for its rebellion, pride, treachery, greed, and violence, not because from eternity past he hated them and that he had no love for them, much the opposite. He went out of his way to help them. He went out of his way to give them opportunities. He put it in the law of Moses that there would be a way in for them. God loved Esau the man, and he loved Esau's children. Esau led his family into material success, but spiritual poverty. At first, it seemed like he made the right choice, but in the end, he proved what God reveals in the books of Proverbs more than once. This is Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. The, the story of the Edomites is a long-form example of that proverb, that truth that the Bible reveals. You see, Esau thought, I'm going to make my way up this mountain. I'm going to climb this ladder. I'm going to get up here, and I'm going to get possessions for myself, and I'm going to establish my family. And man, we're going to rule and reign up here. This is great. But in the end, it was death. Death for his family as, as far as being a part of the family of faith. Death for their future death for the people that they were living amongst, and it was just death, 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 leading up to the ultimate Edomite who participated in the murder of the Messiah. And so you can trace all of it. Everybody had personal responsibility. Don't get me wrong. I don't hang all of that around the neck of Esau, but it all started with Esau. It all started with Esau saying, flocks are more important to me than faith. My possessions are more important to me than these promises this God makes. I don't want to be stuck under Jacob. I want to be out doing a, a king of the, you know, king of the match, king of the, the, the mountain championship here. And it's a sad story. Now, we have the same sort of life choices to make. You're not going to go out and conquer people with a sword, but you have the same life choices to make. What mountain do you want to climb? What mountain are you going to set your family toward? The right answer is the mountain of God, the hill of the Lord. Because on the hill of the Lord is where we receive salvation and blessing and righteousness from a God who loves us and a God who knows us and a God who will direct us, the God of Jacob, not the gods of Esau, the life of, of, of the family of faith not the Edomites, who went their way into sin, into hard-heartedness, and ultimately into ruin and defeat and judgment because they would not follow God. We want to follow the God of Jacob, who loves us and is for us and will do more than we could ever ask or imagine as we follow after him.